Deep in the woodlands of Cheshire lived Meg and her mother. They were poor, but they were happy. Unfortunately, as times got harder and research grant money ran out, they were forced to sell their only cow to cover their RAS subscription. On the road to Manchester, however, Meg met someone quite strange. Excuse me. Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. I can't help but notice you have a cow and a final demand notice from the Royal Astronomical Society. Oh dear, yes. Unfortunately, our grant money's run out, and we now have no way of paying for our astronomy research. I have to sell my cow Milky just to get by. You do astronomy research, you say? Maybe I can help you. I have here some magic beans that will give you all the research money you need to keep going forever. You've got to be joking. That's more idiotic than spam email. Trust me, child. (laughs) What an eccentric performance. Look, I'll give you a receipt and a 12-month no-quibble guarantee. Really? Okay. However, when Meg got back, her mother was not so happy and threw the beans out onto the compost heap. You stupid girl! Our last cow for magic beans! You gave Milky away! Oh, Milky away. Anyway, how are we going to do research now? How will you become rich and famous? How are you going to be a princess now? I told you not to bring up the princess thing ever again. Thanks to you, we'll be having university canteen food for the rest of our days. Nevertheless, in the morning, the beans had magically grown until they were reaching the sky, and Meg decided to climb up and see what was at the top. Through the clouds she climbed until she reached the top, and she walked out towards a castle that was there. Hmm, that's strange. If clouds are simply water vapour, then how am I walking on one? Thankfully, Meg suspended her belief long enough to reach the gates and knock on the door. Hello, hello. It's not one of those astronomy catalogue salesmen again, is it? Excuse me, I'm down here. Oh, I didn't see you there. Come in, dear. You're lucky my husband isn't home. He doesn't like astronomers. Doesn't like astronomers? Why ever not? They're always wanting to come up here and view the sky on a cloudy night. He says they trample the cloud until it's very patchy. Still, sit down in here and wait while I bring you some tea. Gosh, thank you. We astronomers do like a nice cup of tea. Wow, look at all this stuff. Hey, is that a telescope? Not just any telescope. You can give me any object to point at and I will show you what you want. A talking telescope? Wow. Let's try this then. Um, Venus. How fast do you want me to move? Oh, uh, medium. Venus at medium speed coming up. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. That's nothing. I'm a goose that lays golden eggs. A goose that lays golden eggs? The old man was right. There are riches up here beyond my wildest dreams. And I'm up. I can play whatever you want. In I can do podcasts as well. Really? Go on then. Play me a fantastic astronomy podcast from the University of Manchester that's about to celebrate its seventh birthday. Nothing less you holding in a The Jodcast. It's behind you. Oh no, it isn't. With Megan Argo, 
John Field, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, December 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Mark and in the studio with me today are Libby and Megan. Hello! Now you might have gathered that it's panto season once again and that's what the intro was all about. So in the show this time, we talk to Dr. Phil Marshall about how to wear a galaxy, and we find out what you can see in the December night sky. But first of all, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, evidence for a ginormous black hole in a comparatively small galaxy, superluminous supernovae at high redshift, and Messenger finds evidence of water ice on Mercury. There is convincing evidence that most, if not all, galaxies contain a central supermassive black hole, with a mass between hundreds of thousands and billions of times that of the Sun. The best studied of these black holes is also the closest, the one located in our own galaxy, known as Sagittarius A-star. The most massive black holes known are predominantly located in giant elliptical galaxies, whilst smaller ones are generally found inside the central bulge of disk galaxies similar to the Milky Way. Much of the observational evidence collected to date suggests that the properties of a galaxy's central black hole correlate with those of its host galaxy's bulge, But the physical reason why this should be is not clear, and many different theoretical models have been proposed to explain the observed results. Now a team of astronomers have discovered a black hole which is abnormally massive compared to its host galaxy, a discovery which could potentially challenge models of galaxy formation. As massive as they are, these central compact objects make up only a small fraction of the total mass of a galaxy, typically about one-tenth of a percent with the current record holder being NGC 4486b, with 11% of its mass accounted for by a central black hole. But now, publishing in Nature in November, a group led by Remco van den Bosch of the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Germany have discovered an unusual compact galaxy where the central black hole makes up more than half of the total mass of the galaxy's central bulge. Black holes, as the name suggests, are not easy to detect directly, but their presence is felt by the surrounding material, and these effects are easier to see. One way the mass of a black hole can be calculated is by measuring the velocity dispersion, the distribution of velocity seen in the surrounding material. Using the Hobby Eberly telescope in the USA, the team observed nearly 700 nearby galaxies and examined their spectra, looking for the telltale broadening of spectral lines caused by the motion of stars in the vicinity of a black hole. In a similar way to a siren changing in pitch as an ambulance race is passed, the motion of the stars alters slightly the colour of the light we see. Measuring the broadening of spectral lines gives us an idea of how the velocities of the stars in the bulge deviate from the average. The larger the deviation, the greater the velocity dispersion, and the more massive the black hole must be. Despite the small size of the host galaxy, the spectrum of NGC 1277 shows that its central black hole is one of the most massive yet discovered. The team's results show that it has a mass of roughly 17 billion times that of the Sun. In total, the mass of NGC 1277 is around 120 billion solar masses, making the black hole accountable for an exceptional 14% of the galaxy's total mass. But is this peculiarly centrally dense galaxy an exceptional one-off, or is it the first example of a new population? From this survey, the team found five other small galaxies with similarly large velocity dispersions, indicating that the central 200 parsecs contains more than 10 billion solar masses of material, some 100 times larger than typical galaxies of the same size. It is so far unclear whether these six galaxies with strangely dense central regions are simply outliers in the distribution of black hole galaxy properties, or evidence of a different population which formed in a different way. 
but the astronomers conclude that the properties of these six galaxies, small, red, containing mainly old stars with no evidence of recent star formation, are similar to those of typical red, passive galaxies seen in the early universe, suggesting that these compact nearby systems may be present-day analogues of high redshift galaxies. Supernovae come in many flavours, and, until recently, there were thought to be just two main mechanisms. Now, a third class of supernova, only discovered a few years ago, is opening a new window on the early universe. Supernovae lacking evidence for hydrogen and helium in their spectra are known as type 1a supernovae, and are caused by material from a companion star building up on an evolved white dwarf in a binary stellar system. When the white dwarf reaches critical mass, it undergoes a thermonuclear explosion. The second class of stellar explosion is the core collapse supernova, where a massive star, greater than about eight times the mass of the Sun, fuses increasingly heavier elements in its core. This process results in greater and greater quantities of iron in the star's core, until, eventually, the star collapses under gravity, releasing huge amounts of energy which rips the star apart. Both of these classes of supernova are incredibly bright, and type 1a supernovae are so luminous that they can be used to probe the universe back to a time when it was less than half its present age. It is studies of this class of explosion which led to the discovery of dark energy and the award of last year's Nobel Prize in Physics. Since light takes time to travel across space, the light we see from distant objects is old and allows us to examine the universe as it was when it was much younger. The longer the light takes to reach us, the older it is, and the further back in time we are looking. Now, an international team of astronomers led by Jeff Cook at Swinburne University of Technology in Australia have discovered two examples of a rare third class of superluminous supernova, explosions which are ten or more times more luminous than other types of supernova. Because they are so bright, they can be seen at much larger distances than other types of supernova, allowing us to probe even further back in the history of the universe. This class of supernovae are thought to occur in extremely massive stars, those with masses between 100 and 300 times that of our Sun. One possible explanation for this type of event is known as pair instability. Such massive stars, if they are massive enough, could end up with cores big enough and hot enough to create pairs of electrons and positrons. This process can reduce the pressure in the star's core so that it shrinks and heats up, causing a massive thermonuclear explosion which releases large amounts of gamma rays. Although rare, these events are typically 10 times brighter than type 1a thermonuclear supernovae and 100 times as luminous as core collapse supernovae. Using existing data from the Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, or CFHT, Cook and his team looked at images taken over several years and combined them in a new way to look for distant transient events. They found two transients whose properties are similar to those of superluminous supernovae seen in the nearby universe, but which are much further away. The previous record for detection of a type 1a supernova was at a redshift of 1.55. These new detections are at redshifts of 2.05 and 3.9, so the explosions happened just 3 and 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang. Theories suggest that massive stars and such extreme explosions were much more common in the early universe than they are today. So, while examples of these pair instability supernovae are still extremely rare, and much uncertainty remains over the underlying mechanisms, they could potentially become highly useful probes of the earliest days of star formation. Being the closest planet to the Sun, Mercury's surface is hot enough in places to melt lead, so it would seem an unlikely place to find water ice. But recent data sent back from the MESSENGER probe, Mercury Surface Space Environment Geochemistry and Ranging, shows evidence of abundant water ice and other volatile materials in craters near the planet's poles. The idea that ice may exist near Mercury's poles is not a new one. 
Unlike the Earth, which is tilted relative to the plane of its orbit around the Sun by 23.5 degrees, the tilt of Mercury's rotational axis is almost zero, so there are places on the planet's surface which never see daylight. In 1991, a radar experiment, carried out using the 305-metre Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico, detected reflective patches at Mercury's poles, with the characteristics expected from patches of water ice. The trouble is, very similar radar signatures could have been generated by other chemicals. Now, several lines of evidence have come together to provide stronger proof that ice is hiding in the shadows. November saw the publication of three papers describing findings from NASA's messenger mission to the planet Mercury. Writing in Science Express, three teams of researchers present different results which, together, substantially strengthen the case for volatile substances on the planet's surface. One team, led by Gregory Newman at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, used the Mercury Laser Altimeter to measure the reflectance of the planet's surface in regions of permanent shadow near the North Pole, and found patches of unusually dark and bright deposits at the same locations as the highly radar-reflective spots seen by Arecibo 20 years ago. Comparing these deposits to thermal models of the planet by a team led by David Page of the University of California, calculated from topographic data collected by Messenger, show that the bright patches are located in regions where the temperature is cold enough the water ice could exist at the surface, while the dark patches correspond to regions where water ice could exist in a layer just beneath the surface regolith. The third piece of evidence comes from the neutron spectrometer on board Messenger, an experiment which is able to map the concentration of hydrogen on the planet's surface. Since water is composed of hydrogen and oxygen atoms, high concentrations of hydrogen suggest the presence of water ice deposits. This team, led by David Lawrence of Johns Hopkins University, used data from Messenger's neutron spectrometer to map the flux of neutrons from Mercury's northern polar region, and found large concentrations of hydrogen within the same radar-bright regions. Taken together, these three results show convincing evidence for large water ice deposits, both at and just below the surface of Mercury, in the perpetually cold and dark polar regions. The teams conclude that the most likely source of this water is cometary or asteroid impacts, which occurred perhaps 50 million years ago, which, geologically speaking, is fairly recently. And finally, that was my last ever news. Probably. Oh no! <laughs> Megan's been doing the news for how long is it? Uh, well, since the show began, so seven years. Wow, that's a good stint. That is I, a good news. I think so, yeah. And you've missed it less often than Patrick Moore's missed the sky at night? Well, I think I've missed three or four main shows in total because of conference trips or just being too busy with other things. So, uh, yeah, not bad. It's sad times that you... <laughs> but did you enjoy doing the last and finally? And finally. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> contemplating what the best uh, emphasis to put on it was. Yeah. From January, Stuart Harper will be ably taking over the news. Um, so if anyone's going to miss Megan's voice, then... <laughs> They can probably still find it in other places, right? Yeah, there's a few other podcasts I've contributed to, and uh, we a uh, few of us are contemplating starting up a new one. So, not that we're trying to rival the Jodcast or anything, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of other ideas that don't necessarily fit into the Jodcast. So, so watch the odds and ends section, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, we definitely fit in there. <laughs> Yes, some of you are odder than others. <laughs> have we ever done that one before? You, you are odd, but it's not the end. I think we have done that before. <laughs> 
well, we hope in the fine jogcast tradition, this will just be the latest in uh, a long line of times that you're saying goodbye and leaving the show and then coming back again. Yes, well, yeah, the first time I left was in 2008 when I departed for Australia. But uh, yes, as you might have noticed, I carried on anyway. Um, Can't escape with... the jogcast, can you? No, no, nobody ever escapes the jogcast. Mind you, when was the last time we had Stuart Lowe on? This time last year. Okay. I think. Okay. In the panto. Ah, who, of course. Who knows? It's like an event horizon of Jogcast. You can never escape. You can be spaghettified. Well, thanks for that, Megan. And in the interview for this show, Libby talked to Dr. Phil Marshall about weighing galaxies. Joining me today is Phil Marshall from the University of Oxford. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. And you have a very intriguing talk that you're going to give about weighing galaxies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it sounds uh, sounds a bit crazy, but it's true. For a living, I weigh galaxies. Um, the talk this afternoon isn't isn't about um, what we can learn from the the weight of galaxies, though. It's it's rather you have to weigh the galaxies on the way to doing something uh, even more interesting. Oh, I'm very intrigued. Well, can we start off with actually how you go about? weighing a galaxy to get to, before we get to the more interesting parts. Yeah, there's, there's a number of ways you can you can weigh a galaxy. It's not easy. Uh, you can imagine looking at a galaxy with a telescope and all you see is it's uh, uh, the light coming from its stars. So the easiest thing you could think of doing is is maybe adding up all the light from a galaxy, measuring its total brightness, and then figuring out how many stars you would need to, to make that, that brightness. But that turns out uh, not to be so useful because then you only get to estimate the mass in stars. And we think that most of the mass in galaxies is actually in dark matter. So there's all this uh, matter in galaxies that we can't see in telescopes, but instead have to uh, figure out that's there by other means. And how would you go about doing that? Well, one of the ways we can do it is by measuring the speeds of stars in galaxies. Uh, if you imagine uh, stars uh, buzzing around inside galaxies, uh, the reason why they, they don't escape is because they're, they're held in by the gravitational pull of the rest of the matter in the galaxy, including the dark matter. So if you can measure, for example, the, the maximum speed of a star in a galaxy, that tells you something about how much mass is there to keep it in. But even that's not, not how I weigh galaxies. <laughs> I use something called gravitational lensing. So this is uh, using uh, an effect that was predicted by Einstein. Um, he was thinking about gravity and figured out that, that the way gravity works is that the that massive objects bend the space around them. So you can imagine a gravitational field being like a, um, a rubber sheet with a, with a bowling ball in the middle of it and something like that. And so if you roll a marble then uh, around that sheet, then uh, it will follow a curved path rather than a straight line. And light does the same thing on its way past a massive galaxy. And so what we do is we, we find examples of uh, massive galaxies uh, in uh, surveys of the, of the sky. We go looking for massive galaxies. And very occasionally, maybe one in a thousand times, something like that, we find a massive galaxy that has another galaxy way off in the background behind it. And what we see in that case is not two galaxies, a bright one in the foreground and a faint one in the background, what we see is a bright galaxy with a weird pattern of arcs around it, arc-shaped distorted images. And what's happening is that the light from the background galaxy is getting deflected as it goes past the foreground galaxy. 
So there's a very famous example of this, of the Einstein ring. Is that a, is that a gravitationally lensed galaxy? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we know a, a number of um, Einstein rings now. Um, they were uh, originally thought to be uh, very rare, but it turns out the, the deeper you look at one of these gravitational lenses, the more likely you are to see very faint light coming from the background galaxy. And, and you often see long arcs that connect up to, to make rings. So what I do is I collect examples of this, of these gravitational lenses, and then make very detailed measurements of these Einstein rings, um, matching up all the pixels with predictions that I make, given my understanding of, of what background galaxies should look like if they're not lensed, um, and then manage to reconstruct where all the mass in the foreground galaxy has to be. And then you add all that up and you've weighed a galaxy. So when you said you had to find evidence of these in, in surveys, does that mean you have to go through a lot of data, these quite rare events? Yeah, they are very rare. So one in a thousand massive galaxies is acting as a lens. It happens to have a, a faint blue galaxy sitting behind it, or perhaps a, a, a AGN or a quasar or something like that in the distant universe sitting behind it. So one in a thousand massive galaxies, and massive galaxies are already quite rare in the universe. So yeah, typically we have to look at a lot of... Uh, sky in order to find an example of a, of a gravitational lens like this. And is there any way to predict this before this occurs and you know exactly where to look or is it a case of just going through a lot of data hunting? Uh, it's, uh, we, we can help ourselves out a little bit. I mean, if you imagine just uh, taking lots of pictures of the sky and looking at them by eye, that would take a, a very, very long time. It has been done in, in some cases, but it, it's it's very time consuming and perhaps we can speed it up by instead of looking at entire images we can automatically detect where the bright massive galaxies are and then just go and look at little images of those to see whether there are patterns of arcs around them and that's that's typically what we do okay thank you for that and then when you're weighing the galaxy you have to have a lot of information about the foreground galaxy is that mainly through models, or do you have other observations that support that before you can get predictions on the galaxy that you're weighing behind it? So when we when we do the the um, uh, the weighing part, it's usually with uh, very high quality data, very sharp images from the Hubble Space Telescope. They they give the best uh, uh, weight measurements, and there almost all of the information about the the weight of the galaxy is coming from that data. The, the difficult part is, is extracting that information. And yes, we do that by making a model of the foreground galaxy and also a model of the background galaxy and using that model to predict what the image looks like. And once we've got a predicted image, we can compare it with the observed image. And if it, if it fits, uh, then we know we're onto something. And if it doesn't, we have to throw it out and try another one. And when we get computers to try many, many, many different models, changing the parameters of the model until we find uh, a model that fits really well, and then we look at how much mass that model has. May I ask just how massive we're talking of these galaxies? <laughs> um, yep. So the, we're typically talking about um, massive elliptical galaxies. So these are very old systems that have been built up over many billions of years by the merger of lots of smaller galaxies. And they typically have something like a thousand billion times the, the mass of the sun in stars. And then on top of that, there's dark matter as well. So these, these really massive galaxies can be 10 to the power of 13 instead of 10 to the power of 12 times the, sol uh, times the mass of the sun. 
So by that you mean uh, one with 13 zeros afterwards. Exactly. That, yeah. That's a, a very, very heavy galaxy. 10,000 billion times the mass of the sun. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine that in terms of elephants. I don't think that will. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the, maybe the, what's a good comparison? Our own galaxy, uh, the Milky Way, is maybe 10 times less massive than one of these massive galaxies. So these are real monster galaxies. So what type of galaxies are these elliptical galaxies? Well, they're a bit different from our Milky Way, which is a, a spiral galaxy. Um, when you look up in the sky, you see a, a disk of, of stars. That's because we're, we're living in a, in, a, in a sort of flattened, uh, plane-shaped spiral galaxy. But these ellipticals are more like um, rugby balls, and they're mostly yellow in colour when you make a colour image. Astronomers call them red galaxies, but they look yellow. And they contain almost only... Uh, old stars, so low-mass old stars, a bit like our sun. And you said when you weighed them, you get the mass of the stars and then the mass of the dark matter. Hmm. Is that both in the weight of when you've done the Einstein lensing? Yeah, exactly, because um, we're all we're doing is looking at the deflection of light. And Einstein was telling us that the only thing that, that matters when you're figuring out how much light is deflected is how much mass there's there how much uh, gravity there is. And so it doesn't matter whether that mass is in the form of stars or in the form of dark matter. It all behaves the same way. So when we make a, a gravitational lensing measurement of a galaxy, we're measuring total mass on the sky. Could you also work out the mass of the stars and then work out how much dark matter is in these galaxies? Yeah, so that's one of the things we do. We look at the fraction of mass that's in dark matter. And then it's interesting to compare that fraction between galaxies of different types and also galaxies at um, different distances. And the reason it's interesting to look at galaxies at different distances is because in astronomy, uh, when you look at more distant objects, you're seeing them as they were a longer time ago because the light takes longer to, to travel to you from a more distant object. So we can go back in time and look at how the fraction of mass in dark matter changed over time. What do you find out when you do this? <laughs> well, these massive ellipticals are, are already very old. So for the, for the lenses that we've found so far, we don't see much change in the fraction of mass that's in stars compared to dark matter. It looks as though they, they formed a very long time ago, these massive galaxies, and then are just sort of sitting there glowing quietly um, and occasionally eating their neighbours, but, <laughs> but not really changing much. Um, the really exciting time in a massive galaxy's life was maybe the first half of the universe's age. And to find massive galaxies back then at such large distances, we're going to need some uh, new surveys with different telescopes. So we're hoping that, that some very distant lens galaxies will be found by the Herschel telescope, an infrared space telescope that's um, uh, discovering things that, that might turn out to be lenses right now. So that's something to, to watch out for, lenses from Herschel. Ooh, that sounds intriguing. When you weigh these galaxies, you said that was just a means to the end of finding out more intriguing stuff. Is there any other stuff that you find out instead of looking at also galaxies at different uh, yeah, times? Absolutely, absolutely. So it, it's already interesting just on its own to look at the, the mass of galaxies and how, how galaxies have changed over time to understand how galaxies form and evolve. But it turns out that with particular kinds of gravitational lenses, you can go one step further. You can model all the mass, figure out how much the galaxy weighs, and then make a prediction for one uh, extra observable thing. 
And that observable thing that's especially interesting to me and, and to, to others is the time delay between images. So I said that these, um, these lenses cause arc-shaped images around the massive galaxy. You see these arcs. Well, these arcs are images of a background galaxy. And sometimes that background galaxy has a supermassive black hole in the middle of it. And if that supermassive black hole is, is feeding, if there's gas falling into it, then it will grow, um, glow very, very brightly and call it a, a quasar, or at least an, an active galactic nucleus. So we can see these supermassive black holes all the way across the universe. It's uh, fantastic. But most interesting for, for, for me is that they not only glow very brightly, but they flicker in time. If you imagine gas falling into a supermassive black hole, it doesn't just stream in smoothly. It sort of falls in in lumps, and you know it, there's variations in in the amount of gas falling in. And so the brightness of quasars changes with time. So if you can imagine a, a flickering background light source that's being gravitationally lensed into, uh, say, two images of that um, object, so the light coming round the massive galaxy in the foreground one way, but also round the other way as well. So you see two images on the sky. Those uh, light rays are travelling on different length paths, and also they're going through different amounts of uh, gravitational field. And those two things mean that, that the signals from the background quasar arrive in our telescope at different times. There's a time delay between the two images. So we see two images, both of them flickering, but um, the flickers arrive maybe a few weeks apart. And by looking at this, you can see ha how the variations of matter falling into the black hole are occurring. That's right. We can use it to study the supermassive black hole. We can measure uh, variability. We can use the magnifying effect of these lenses, because gravitational lenses really are just like lenses. They give you a magnified view of the, of the distant universe. But they also allow you to, uh, if you can measure the time delay between the images, you can then figure out how far away the lens is and how far away the source is, it turns out. So this is very important. In, in astronomy, it's very difficult to measure the distance to uh, galaxies. You, if you imagine looking at a picture taken from a telescope, uh, it's very difficult to say whether something is in the foreground, something is in the background. It, it's very hard to say how far away things are. So you mean if you had like a really bright source a long way away from you and then a lot fainter source close towards you, but they more or less appear at the same Yeah, how, how would you be able to tell the difference uh, between those things if you didn't know anything about what you were looking at? So the, the gravitational lens uh, gives you extra information. You know that the background object is in the background because it's being lensed, and if you can measure the time delay, you can work out how far away it is. And so you can make a, 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 a measurement, a direct measurement of how far away the, the quasar is, and also how far away the the, um, the lens galaxy is. So you can make a, a direct measurement of, of how far away the quasar is and also how far away the, the lens is. And this is, this is very interesting. We've known for, um, well, since the, the 20, 1920s or 1930s that the, um, galaxies, distant galaxies, are um, moving away from us apparently at high speed. This was uh, uh, Edwin Hubble was, was looking at this in, in, in California and he saw that the galaxies seem to be receding from us at, with some speed. And um, what he did was he, he measured the distance to some galaxies and also their recession speeds, how fast they were moving away from us, and uh, used that to show that the universe was expanding 
right now in, in 2012, we're doing the same experiment, measuring distances to galaxies and comparing with the how far how fast they seem to be moving away from us. And now we can do it much more precisely. And we can, we can measure these distances and, and speeds so well that we can detect that the universe's expansion is accelerating. So Hubble, Hubble could see that the universe was expanding. Now we can see that that expansion is accelerating. What may be causing this acceleration? Well, good question. <laughs> um, nobody really knows what's making it accelerate. We have a name for for it, but we don't know what it is. So we call we imagine that that space is full of this stuff called dark energy, and uh, it sounds exciting, but we really we don't know anything more more about it than that. All we know is that there must be something causing the universe's expansion to accelerate, and so. We've named it, which is, you know, the first step, but now we, we really need to understand what it is. So maybe the, I'd say perhaps the biggest mystery in, in, in physics at the moment is to understand what the, the dark energy is. And my little uh, uh, bit of research is helping here by making slightly more accurate measurements of the acceleration that might be able to help the theoretical physicists uh, determine whether it's, whether dark energy is this kind of thing or that kind of thing. Because prior to this, the the value that Hubble derived, the Hubble's constant, has been widely uncertain. People using a vast range of different mm. values, but now with this method, we can constrain that a lot better and then make better models and better tests. That's right. With, with these time delay lenses, we can measure distances to some uh, uh, an accuracy of something like five percent, and so they're similar to what you can do with uh, supernovae, which you can also use to measure distance, and uh, other techniques as, as well. So what we're doing is finding many different ways to, to measure distance in the universe, and each one of those tells us a little bit more about the, uh, the accelerating universe and narrows down the possibilities for what the dark energy might be. That is so cool. <laughs> Supermassive dark holes, distant galaxies, and also constraining the dark energy of the universe. Just how far, can I ask you how, about the question about how massive they are, how far away is some of the galaxies that you're looking at? Most of the, the lens galaxies, the massive galaxies that are behaving like, um, like lenses, most of them are, we say, at um, uh, redshift point 0.2, redshift point 0.3. Now, this is this jargon, what does this mean? Um, redshift 1 is about can think of as being halfway across the universe. Um, redshift point two is something like 20% the way across the universe. So these are very, very distant objects with even more distant objects behind them. And that's really why we're able to say something about dark energy. If you want to measure the behavior of the universe as a whole, you have to be able to measure objects in the universe that are roughly, you know, uh, half or halfway across the universe. I said that for, for finding very distant lens galaxies halfway across the universe that Herschel was going to be, be very good. If we want to find more time delay lenses, we need to do something different. We need to specifically look for these um, supermassive black holes. We need to specifically look for time variable lenses. Now, most of the Herschel lenses won't have um, supermassive black holes behind them. Some of them will, but not all of them. And so if we want to find lenses that are um, good for measuring dark energy, we need a survey that is provides images that are sharp enough that you can see the multiple images of the background quasar, and it needs to be big enough that you can find lots of lenses in, so you need to look at lots of sky, and it needs to be able to um, tell you whether the object is varying in time or not. 
which means it, it can't be just a static sky survey giving you just one picture of the sky. It has to be a survey that gives you many pictures of the sky over several years. And so I'm involved with a, a couple of projects to do this. And the one that I'm uh, particularly excited about is, is a future project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. So large because it's a big telescope, but it's also planning to do a big survey, half the sky. And synoptic means you can do everything with it. So what the LSST will do is uh, take an image of all of the sky that it can see on a particular night. Um, it will then come back to that patch of sky a few days later and then do the same thing a few days later after that, perhaps in a different filter, and then do the same and again and again and again and do that for 10 years. So what the LSST is, is going to do is to make a 10-year movie of the night sky. And you'll be able to sit there, play the movie, and look at all of the things in the sky that are varying. And so we'll see quasars everywhere that are flickering away. And some of those quasars will be actually two quasars because they've been gravitationally lensed. I'm just imagining all the data and all the wealth of science that can come out of that survey. It will be an absolute treasure trove. Um, it's it's being uh, designed and uh, at the moment, and hopefully will be uh, built starting 2015. And around 2020 is when uh, it should start taking data. the uh, The idea is to try and make that data uh, public. Um, and available to as many people as possible and that's being sorted out at the moment but uh, hopefully everybody in, in the world will eventually have access to uh, this cosmic movie and be able to dive in and, and look for interesting things but it's a, a, a huge uh, uh, database if you imagine not only just the images but if you imagine making uh, lists of all of the objects you can see in those images well, we're talking about uh, many petabytes of data 100 petabytes of data this project should produce. Is that the reason why now it's only becoming possible to do projects like this? Because we hadn't had the technology beforehand to store that amount of information? We've, we've got the technology uh, right now to, to store that information. Uh, if, you had, uh, if you had enough money, you could go down the shop and buy, you know, some, <laughs> <laughs> buy enough hard drives to keep a petabyte of data. So a petabyte is um, 1,000 terabytes, and a terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. So this is, uh, you know, a million gigabytes times 100. Um, another way to think of a petabyte is that if you were to get a copy of every um, book that's ever been published, then uh, all of that, to store all of that information in every book ever published, would take one petabyte. And the LSST will give us 100 petabytes of, of astronomical data. So it is a huge database. So we could store it all now. The storing isn't really the problem. The problem is accessing it. Suppose you have 100 petabytes of data and you want to find, as I do, a 1,000 gravitational lenses. So it's a, it's a problem of data mining. You can think of this enormous mountain of data and I have to somehow get in there with a pickaxe and find <laughs> a 1,000 little gems. An astronomical needle in a haystack. Exactly, yes. <laughs> There's one other thing I'd like to talk to you, talk to you about. Is these galaxies you're looking back, you're looking quite a long way back in time. Are you be able to detect any some of the earlier the very earliest galaxies to form? Was that not possible yet? Yeah, that's a, that's something else you can do with with a gravitational lens. Actually, um, I don't work on this uh, directly, but the the methods for weighing galaxies, measuring the distribution of mass in galaxies, um, I also work a little bit on doing the same thing, but with clusters of galaxies. 
So if you imagine a cluster of galaxies, it looks like maybe a hundred massive galaxies or a few hundred massive galaxies in roughly the same place on, on the sky. And in amongst all those massive galaxies, there's a lot of dark matter. So clusters of galaxies are, are the most massive objects in the universe. They weigh something like a million billion times the mass of the sun, or you can think of it as something like a thousand, the weight of a thousand massive galaxies. It's a typical cluster. Um, and they make very good gravitational lenses. Um, they're very big on the sky, and so they, they typically have lots of different galaxies behind them that are all being multiply imaged. And some of those galaxies are very, very distant indeed. And in fact, the, the most distant, um, or some of the most distant galaxies we, we know about that um, were emitting their light, emitting the light that we, that we see um, at a time when the universe was maybe uh, a tenth of its current age, something like that. We're beginning to detect these galaxies now. They look very, very small, very fuzzy, very red, and um, we see them behind these clusters. And the reason we're able to see them is because the cluster is acting like a cosmic telescope. It's like having a giant lens on the sky that actually magnifies the view behind it. So you can look deeper into the universe with a gravitational lens. Brilliant. Well, I wish you luck when with all the data mining later on. <laughs> and uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Well, good to talk to you too. Thank you. Thanks for that, Libby. And now we get on to that part of the show where we fit in everything that we can't fit in anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. And for the first one, I've got a little bit about a dwarf planet. Which one? Sneezy? Dopey? <laughs> make make ah. not one of the seven dwarfs one of the five dwarf planets in our solar system it's further out than Pluto it's way out in the Kuiper belt and I'm talking about it because some astronomers made some measurements of it during an occultation of a star in April 2011 so it passed in front of a star from our point of view on Earth and that's sort of a bit like shining a torch on it gives us a bit more information than we'd otherwise get because it's very, very small, dark and far away. And what these astronomers discovered was, first of all, they could make an estimate of the size. This occultation only lasted for about a minute, but they were able to make an estimate of the size of Makemake. And they could measure how reflective it is. And they compared it to snow, although not the whitest possible snow, slightly less white than the <laughs> whitest possible snow. Um, and they were able to make an estimate of density as well, and they said it's around about 1.7 grams per cubic centimetre. So water is 1. This is 1.7, indicating mostly ice with some rock. So it's a little bit more dense than the sun. The sun is about 1.4, but, but considerably less dense than the Earth. Yes. Which is about 5.5. There we go. So it's relatively loosely held together, ice and rock. So prior to this, how much do we actually know about Mekomeki? Did we know much information, or was it, is this where we find out a lot of... I think this has helped to improve the estimates quite a lot. I mean, it had been classified as a dwarf planet, which means that astronomers were fairly sure that it was big enough to have made itself into a spherical shape. Um, so I think there were estimates out there, but they've become a lot more tightly constrained. Occultations are really, really useful for, for this sort of information. And what they're saying is that this helps them to explore further into the Kuiper belt, essentially, because one of the unusual things they also discovered... Uh, was that Makemake doesn't have a measurable atmosphere. So Pluto was found to have an atmosphere uh, quite recently, but Makemake, for some reason, doesn't seem to have one. And that was slightly unexpected, apparently. Oh, so it's actually big enough to hold an atmosphere in its gravity, but it just doesn't have one. That's it, yeah. So either it never had one, or it's been removed 
at some point in the past. Or if it's further out than Pluto, because a lot of Pluto's is frozen on the surface, right? A lot of it's frozen out, so if this is even further out, it's even colder, so maybe it's just that more of the atmosphere that does exist is frozen out. Yes. The measurements were made at the European Southern Observatories, La Silla and Paranal Observatories, so I think they'll be probably hoping to train those on some more similar events in the future. Moving to a planet close to us, the first colony on Mars has started to be planned. And this is by the founder of the SpaceX mission, who wants to set up a colony within his lifetime so he can go and retire out on Mars. <laughs> and so I think that's very, very courageous and brave to actually set such a short time constraint to actually go out there and set up an entire colony, not just put someone on Mars, but put, I think he was planning around 80,000 people onto the Martian surface. Wow. So that's quite a lot. It's not a, a small-scale plan. And he's offering to take them all there, is that it? Well, he's offering to facilitate their trip when they, if, they, if, they, uh, <laughs> if they pay around half a million dollars. Is this a one-way trip, or are they coming back? Well, I think initially it's a one-way trip. So he's aiming it at people over 40 who have been able to make a nice little nest egg and then wouldn't like to be on um, the Earth's surface when it reaches a population of around... 8 billion people. So to to escape the overcrowding of Earth, you can go to your very own planet. It's with a population qu- of 10. It's actually, it's, actually <laughs> qu- it's actually quite affordable, isn't it? Half a million dollars. I mean, it's not a small amount of money, but it's not out of the reach of, of a lot of people. So this uh, spaceship that's being planned and is in the early design phase is going to be a huge reusable rocket powered by liquid oxygen and methane, and it's also going to have water surrounding it to protect the people inside. And initially, the first few spacecrafts that are going to go there are only going to be able to use once. Um, so that's going to take the equipment, including machines and fertilizers and oxygen and all sorts of other stuff that can actually make the habit hat for people. Um, but eventually, they're going to have a continuous flow of people to and from the red planet, the red planet to the blue planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I don't know how many people will be there when it... I hit 40. Will you be? Will you be purchasing your ticket? No. Why <laughs> <laughs> ever not? Um, I think I like having trees and rivers and people around me. I don't think, I don't fancy the long trip to Mars mm. or creature comforts. What about you, Megan? I would go. Even I if would... it was a one way, definite one way? I think so. I would quite like to. I would enjoy the challenge, I think, of setting up an entire colony from scratch. I would be. That would be a challenge. Amazing to watch it happen and to help it happen. I think I might go if I could come back at some point. I might give up the creature comforts for a few years. Mm. But obviously it's also potentially it could be quite dangerous. I mean, we probably can't quantify all the risks out there. So, Well, no, but we never can with any kind of exploration, right? So yeah, the exactly. people who are the first colonists of, of America, you know, they didn't know what to expect either. Yeah, be prepared. Yeah, or at least stories about monsters living over, over the hills and... I think maybe if there was 80,000 people there, then maybe I'd be more inclined to go. But the the initial people, I mean, you'd have to get the right balance of skills and experience to be able to make it a viable colony. Yeah. Um, Scout badges and so on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think I'd qualify there. <laughs> but I think the initial first 1,000 people or so, you'd have to be carefully selected, I would imagine. Well, you're going to need a lot of construction because you're going to have to build habitats that are safe and pressurised and 
yeah, places where you can, well, people who know how to grow things to eat. And I also imagine it's going to be a lot more controlled because of safety issues. So you're going to have to have probably someone who's in control of the entire colony. Saying that, that, that I may fancy? find you a trip to. <laughs> <laughs> Queen Libby of the Dirty Martian Colony. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> well, we haven't got a night sky guide for anyone on Mars just yet. But here is Ian Morrison telling us what we can see from Earth's northern hemisphere in the night sky in December. Hello. I think this December is one of the best months we've had to observe the heavens for many a long while. Obviously, the nights are long, and that's great. But we have also Jupiter at its best for quite a long time, high in the sky, and a chance to see the Geminid meteors with no moon in the sky as well. So it really is good. If you look up at the western sky soon after sunset, as it gets dark, you see one of the two lovely regions of the constellations in the sky, Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila, with their bright stars Altair, Deneb and Vega, making up what's called the Summer Triangle, but still visible late into the autumn. As the night moves on, another wonderful region appears in the eastern sky, the constellation of Taurus the Bull, Orion the Hunter, Gemini the Heavenly Twins, and Canis Major. In between, we have the square of Pegasus. One good way of judging how dark and transparent the sky is, is to count the number of stars that you can see within the square. My rather elderly eyes now, I'm afraid, tend to see about five. We did this test recently, at a, a weekend star party and the youngest member there who was just 12 he saw eight stars when we're young our pupils dilate further up to about seven millimeters diameter allowing perhaps twice as much light to pass into our eyes than when we're old when perhaps they only reach five millimeters in diameter in the night sky page i give a chart starting from the bright star alpha rats the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, you can star-hop your way to Andromeda. Best look for around the 12th, 13th, 14th or so of the month when it's around New Moon. And if it's really transparent, you've got a chance of seeing M33, which is the third largest galaxy in our local group, Andromeda being the first, our Milky Way galaxy the second, and M33 the third. Moving over towards the east, M45, the Pleiades cluster, will be very visible. And below that, between it and the Hyades cluster, will be Jupiter. The bright star there, Aldebaran, is in fact not part of the Hyades cluster, about halfway between ourselves and the cluster. And then rising below that, of course, is Orion the Hunter. With binoculars, have a look below the central star of Orion's belt, and you should see a little fuzzy glow, which is the Orion Nebula a region of star formation, the nearest we have, in fact, to our sun. As time moves on, Sirius will appear above the eastern horizon. A little bit below it is a very nice star cluster called M41. The majority of the stars are blue, they're hot young blue stars, but there's one red giant in the centre, making a lovely little colour comparison. So there's a lot to see. What about the planets? Well, as I've said, great month to view Jupiter. It rises about sunset at the beginning of December. 
it reaches opposition, so we're visible all night. So it's due south around midnight. We'll see it very well indeed. When it's due south, in the constellation of Taurus the Bull, it will be about 60 degrees above the horizon. So we're not seeing it through too much of our atmosphere. The best for many, many years, in fact. Shining at magnitude, minus 2.8. It starts December, lying just 5 degrees to the upper left of Aldebaran. But during the month, it gradually moves westwards. And so it's a little bit up to the right by the end, towards the lovely little star cluster, the Pleiades. The angular diameter stays pretty constant. It's about 48 arc seconds. And so there's plenty of detail to see with a small telescope. It does depend, though, on how good what is called the seeing is. Sometimes the night is very turbulent. And whatever telescope you have, Jupiter will look rather blurred. But on a really good night, it can look absolutely fantastic. Now, Saturn rises about 4 a.m. as December begins, and by 2.30, by the end of the month. So it's well above the horizon by dawn. Both its magnitude and angular diameter are increasing during the month, from plus 0.7 to plus 0.6 magnitudes, and from 15.7 to 16.1 arc seconds. And of course, the lovely ring system extends for about twice that diameter. The really good news is that the rings have now opened out to about 18 to 19 degrees from the line of sight. Their best, in fact, for six years. We're now observing the southern hemisphere. In fact, much of the northern hemisphere is hidden behind the rings. Do try and get yourself a small telescope, not just to look at Jupiter, but look at Saturn as well. You should be able to see, with a small telescope, the gap between the two brightest rings, called Cassini's division. And you'll also see some of the brighter of its satellites, such as Titan. Mercury. Well, it reaches greatest western elongation on the 4th of December, when it will be separated by 20 degrees or so from the sun. It shines at magnitude minus 0.5 throughout the month. On the 4th of December, it rises about two hours before the sun, not far from Venus, in what is in fact an excellent apparition for northern hemisphere observers. As it begins, it will be 48% illuminated, having an angular size of about 7.4 arc seconds. Well, at the end of the month, it's actually got rather smaller in angular size, 4.8 arc seconds, but it'll be 96% illuminated, so still relatively bright. Mars has been around low in the western sky for some months now. It's moving eastwards from Sagittarius into Capricornus. Visible low in the southwest after sunset, shining at magnitude plus 1.2. The angular size is actually falling. It's about 4.3 down to 4.2 arc seconds. So honestly, you're not going to see any details on its salmon pink surface. But nevertheless, it is there to see if you wish. And finally, Venus. It's now getting closer to the sun, but at magnitude minus 4, it's still easily visible in the pre-dawn sky, though it's now somewhat closer to the horizon than it was last month. As dawn breaks, it will start the month with an elevation of about 17 degrees, but that will drop to about 10 degrees by month's end. At the same time, the angular size is dropping somewhat from 11.6 down to 10.9 arc seconds, but at the same time, the percentage of the surface illuminated increases from 88 to 
And the result is that these effects compensate each other and the brightness remains absolutely constant at minus four magnitudes. Well, what about the highlights of the month? Well, I've already mentioned that Jupiter is at its best for absolutely ages. It's looking somewhat different than it has during the last few years. The North Equatorial Belt has become quite broad. The Great Red Spot is currently a pale shade of pink, but easily seen as a large feature in the South Equatorial Belt. And on the Night Sky page, I've given a list of the times in the evening when the red spot is roughly facing us on the meridian towards us. A good chance, therefore, to see it. On December the 3rd, if you don't mind waking up till around midnight or so, you can actually see the moon occulting an open cluster. It's M27. It's in the constellation of Cancer. At about 10.45, the moon's western, that's the bright limb, will begin to occult the stars of the cluster. Those first stars will then reappear beyond the dark limb. That's actually when it's rather nice to see them, just popping into view at about one o'clock next morning. Now, as the moon's not very far away, we have parallax effects, and that means the precise times when these occultations occur depend upon where you live, in the UK or elsewhere. On December the 10th and 11th, again one hour before dawn, we have Saturn, Venus and Mercury again, but this time they're joined with a thin, waning crescent moon. And now a second major highlight for this month. On December the 14th and 15th, after midnight, we have a wonderful opportunity, if it's clear, let's hope so, to observe the Geminid meteor shower. The great thing is, those dates correspond to new moon, so there'll be no light from the moon in the sky to hinder our view. Really, you want to get away, well away from towns and cities, and that helps quite a bit, because the sky will be darker. The relatively slow meteors that we might see arise from debris released from the asteroid 3200 Phaeton. Actually, unusual, as most meteor showers come from comets, and as it implies from the name the Geminids, the radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is close to the bright star Castor in the constellation of Gemini. And again, there's a star chart to show you on the night sky page. If it's clear, it's going to be cold. So don't forget to wrap up well, wear a woolly hat, and have some nice hot drinks with you. In fact, the other day I bought myself some fur-lined boots just to help that sort of thing. There's another meteor shower, perhaps not quite so well known. It's called the Ursids, which implies it comes from Ursa Major. In fact, to be honest, the um, radiant is very close to the star Kokab in Ursa Minor. The rate isn't very high, 10 to 15 meteors per hour at best, but sometimes you actually get a higher rate, so it might be worth having a look. Best perhaps after 2 to 3 o'clock, because around that time in the morning, the moon is going to be setting down in the west, so it won't really hurt our view. So that's the Geminids and then the Ursids. I've shown you that, in fact, there's a chart to show you how to find the Andromeda Galaxy and M33 and Triangulum, I've mentioned before. On 10 to the 15th, again, around New Moon, have a look for Neptune. A star chart is given for that. It's at a magnitude of about 7.8. So, in fact, binoculars would pick it out. The trouble is, it's, it's important to know that you're seeing it. Perhaps have a look for a few days and you might just spot a very tiny motion is very close to the star Iota Aquarii in Aquarius. 
and that's slightly upwards from the star Delta Capricorno. Finally, if you're compass mentist after sunset on Christmas Day, Jupiter is joined by a moon just three days before full. And that, of course, you'll see in the eastern sky as Jupiter's rising. If you're lucky, you might just spot Father Christmas on his way home. Well, they all say it's to the North Pole. I don't believe that. I've actually seen him in Lapland. That's where I think he's going. So I've also put Father Christmas on the star chart. Anyway, it's a lovely month to observe the heavens. Lots of dark skies. Let's hope we get some clear skies as well. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And now, here is John Field telling us what you can see in the southern night sky in December. Kia ora and welcome to the December Jobcast coming to you from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. Our evening skies dominate in the north by the constellations of Taurus, Orion and his two hunting dogs Canis Major and Canis Minor. The summer Milky Way stretches through these constellations and along our southern horizon. Although not as bright as our winter Milky Way, it still exhibits the mottled glow of bright and dark regions. The bright regions are the combined light of many of the distant stars that form our galaxy. The dark patches are the clouds of interstellar gas and dust that block the light of the more distant stars. This month we will tour some of the most famous nebulae in our sky. Our starting point is in the north of Orion's Belt. This easily seen line of three stars is formed by three blue supergiant stars ranging in distance from 700 to 1300 light years from us. Alnitak, the easternmost star, is a double star system that can be a challenge to split in small telescopes. There has been a lot of discussion as to what colours the two stars appear as when seen in a telescope. Why not observe this star and know what colour they appear to you? The ultraviolet radiation from this star is illuminating a cloud of dust and gas, creating NGC 2024, the Flame Nebula. Also nearby is IC434, that includes the famous Horsehead Nebula. Both of these features are challenging to observe in telescopes due to the brilliance of Alnitak, but both show up well in long exposure photographs. Above Orion's belt, for us southern hemisphere observers, there is a fainter second line of stars called the Sword of Orion. The middle star of this line appears as a hazy cloud called the Great Nebula. Sitting about 1,000 light years away, it is part of a much larger dark cloud of interstellar material. The nebula is being lit up by newly formed stars that have created a hole in the cloud's edge due to their strong stellar winds and intense radiation. Binoculars and telescopes reveal more detail and long exposure photographs will reveal a range of colours. This nebula is not as large or bright as the Carina nebula that sits between the Pulse and Southern Crosses. Below the belt is Betelgeuse marking one of the shoulders of the hunter. With a distinct red glow, this red giant is a variable star ranging in brightness from 0.2 to 1.2 over a period of about six years. There are also a number of other cycles ranging from 150 to 300 days, which keeps astrophysicists on their toes trying to explain them all. Above the belt is a bright star rider marking one of Orion's feet. This blue-white giant star is about 900 light years away and is a companion star that can be seen in medium-sized telescopes. The head of Taurus sits to the left of Orion and forms a distinct V in the evening sky. Sitting about halfway between the horns and the head is the planet Jupiter. Appearing as a bright star, Jupiter has been slowly moving through this constellation over the last few months. It will be at opposition on the 3rd of December and Jupiter will be at its brightest during December. Just before Christmas Day, the moon moves through Taurus and past the Pleiades, and soon after Aldebaran and Jupiter. Uranus and Neptune are in our evening sky and can be found in Pisces and Aquarius, respectively. Crux, the southern cross, is low in the southeastern sky, and an obvious dark cloud sits beside it. Called the Colsac Nebula, it is about 600 light years away. 
Although dark and visible light, infrared telescopes reveal large numbers of hot spots. This is where gravity and other dynamic pressures have caused the internal sections of the cloud to collapse and form stars. The light from the stars is absorbed by the cloud and re-emitted at infrared wavelengths. Eventually the strong stellar winds from the newly formed stars inside the cloud will break up the cloud, revealing the stars. This is what has occurred in the Orion Nebula. The jewel box cluster on the Pleiades are examples where the clouds have been fully dispersed and only the stars can be seen. There is another type of object visible as a cloud in our evening sky. Rather than a cloud of material belonging to our galaxy, the large Magellanic Cloud is a massive satellite galaxy of our own Milky Way at about 200,000 light years away. This object is a great target for binoculars and small telescopes with many faint star clusters and nebulae to discover. Not far from the large cloud is a small Magellanic Cloud, and near to this is the bright globular cluster 47 Tucane. Visible as a hazy star next to the SMC, binoculars reveal it as a golf ball shape of stars that brighten to a brilliant core. A second fainter globular cluster can be found using small telescopes close to the SMC called NGC362. It is nice to compare it with 47 Tucane. We have two meteor showers happening during December. On the 6th of December, the Phoenicids reach their peak. With a rating within the constellation of Phoenix, not far from Achenar, this shower produces a few meters per hour, but occasionally a higher rate may be seen. With this constellation high above our horizon, it is well placed for observing. The other meteor shower, peaking on the 14th, is the Geminids. This is one of the best showers of the year, but we are not well placed for viewing it in New Zealand. The radiant in Gemini below and near the star cast rises about 3am in the morning New Zealand daylight time. Due to its low height, we may only see about 50% of the meteors compared to those in the northern hemisphere. This shower will still produce a number of bright meteors and with the peak being one day from new moon, it is well worth viewing. Due to the extended nature of this shower, viewing for a week either side of the state is worthwhile. December 21st marks the summer solstice in the southern hemisphere, marking the time of our longest daylight hours and our shortest nighttime hours. And all going to plan, the world will not end on the state. And talking of the sun, the expected increase in solar activity as we head towards solar maximum has taken a nosedive. The number of spots and overall activity has decreased. This current cycle is throwing up many surprises and this cycle may be the weakest for over 40 years. This decrease in activity was not predicted and we still hope that activity may increase between now and expected maximum in February to May of next year. During March of 2013 we will hopefully have a bright comet gracing our skies. C2011 L4 Panstars is a comet that may reach a brightness of up to magnitude minus 4. Comets though are notorious for underperforming and we will not know how bright this comet will be until it passes the Sun in March. The Northern Hemisphere may get the best view of the comet after its closest approach to the Sun in March and it will be low in the west after sunset. It has been a pleasure bringing you the night sky in 2012 and the team here at Cardiff Observatory wish you clear skies and we look forward to another year of stargazing in 2013. Thanks for that John. And now on to the feedback. Yes, so this month we, we have some real post. We have a postcard from the Space Centre in Houston from Christina. <laughs> Self-generated <laughs> post once again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we nearly sent you a postcard from La Palma, but we both forgot, so never mind. Um, so she says, Hi, Jogger says, having fun nerding out at NASA. Um, she actually got to sit at the historic Mission Control Flight Director Station, which is awesome. I'm very jealous. Wow. Um, and apparently, yes, it was. Uh, oh, she's enjoying the November sunshine. <laughs> it's been very wet and cold here. So, thank you, Christina. I want to sit in the mission control chair. <laughs> you could direct the flights to Mars. <laughs> oh. Maybe a little director chair that he folds out. I if it's the same. I don't know if that's a good idea. They're going to be dual controls on those things. <laughs> 
I'm also really enjoying the phrase nerding out because yes. I'm wondering exactly what nerding out involves. Is yeah, it being I... completely overwhelmed by nerdy things until you kind of faint on the floor? Yeah, I have a vision of Christina lying on the ground underneath one of the, the Saturn V uh, engine bells. <laughs> well, maybe there's so many, so many things you can see that you want to run between them all, but you're sort of stuck in the one spot because you don't know which way to run first. <laughs> if you know what nerding out is, please tell Answers us. Answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> In the emails, we've had a lovely poetry corner suggestion from Daniel B, who says, I enjoy the night sky past the Jogcast each month. It gives a listener a purely aesthetic appreciation of astronomy. Lovely. I call it Poetry Corner, and I thought listeners could extend this on cloudy nights by reading poetry of Robert Frost. He was an American living for some years in the UK who wrote a number of astronomically relevant poems. I don't know anyone with more commitment to astronomy than this man, who actually burnt down his farmhouse to afford a telescope. <laughs> Which is definitely committed. Um, <laughs> though, I wonder what the night sky was like if he had to burn it down. I hope he wasn't trying to afford the telescope at the same time as he burning. <laughs> it is quite a nice idea. Maybe we can get Ian to read uh, the night sky in poetry form. Or get Ian to read some of his poems of Robert Frost. Mm-hmm. Or a musical accompaniment, perhaps. Mm. We'll think about a poetry corner. On the forum and Facebook and Twitter, thanks for all the posts and likes and retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And finally, don't forget that you can also send us posts. The address is on the website. Well, thanks first to Megan for doing all that news and to Phil Marshall for this episode's interview. The editors were Dan Thornton, Megan Argo, David Alt, Claire Bretherton and Mark Perver. And the producer was Libby Jones. So until next time, jot on! Thanks for that, Harp. And thank you, Telescope, for showing me everything that Ian and John were talking about in the night sky. Though you could have gone a bit quicker. Sorry about that. It was just so interesting. I smell the blood of an astronomer. Quick, quick, get behind me. What's going on here? Huh? Have you been playing podcasts again? Uh, maybe... Goose, you've spoken again without my permission. Yes, I did. I'm sorry. And telescope, you're in a different position. And you have somebody hiding behind you. Oh, no, it doesn't. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, no, it doesn't. Oh, yes, it does. That's me, you big bully. And how dare you speak to these lovely... Um, things like that. What? How dare you? I'll smash you into the ground. I'll feed you to the rats in the dungeon. I'll tear you so fast. Quick, quick, let's go. Pick up the harp. Both the goose and I have legs. So the group ran out of the castle and started climbing down the beanstalk, hearing the giant following close behind. When they got to the bottom, Meg started furiously chopping at the beanstalk until down it toppled and the giant fell tumbling to the ground. Meg! What are you doing? What's all this? 
Oh, Mum, we're saved. Look, a goose that lays golden eggs, a harp that will play anything, and a telescope that can point at anything you want. We'll never need a research grant again. That's great, especially as you've just destroyed our house with a giant beanstalk. We'll never get a physicist to do anything practical. Come on, we're moving abroad. But, Mum... But nothing. You're grounded. No more new segments for you. We'll have to leave them with that Harper boy down the road. But, but, loads of money. Magic telescope. Oh, come on, Meg. We're poor and you know it. We'll have to wear rags like usual. We'll have to fast on animal blood, fish sauce and beetle juice for the rest beetle of Beetle juice coming up. <laughs> I thought she'd never shut up. Neither did I. Thanks, telescope. My pleasure.